1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Reading the news over the past few years might make you think that there's more racism in America. But a recent huge study suggests just the opposite. The problem is that America's politics has become more polarized along racial lines. And there are a few emotional reactions that cross language and culture barriers. Laughing, crying, and screaming. We take a look at the very concept of the scream in popular culture, and why it's so widespread. But first... More than half of the world's population is now online. That still leaves billions of people who aren't. They are catching up fast, and nowhere faster than in India. But the developing world's transition to wired lifestyles won't look like the first halves did, not least because of differences in language and literacy. Businesses will have to figure out how best to serve these new markets, and it may not always be the current tech titans who do. Some internet trends, though, are starting to look like human universals. Stereotypes about how the developing world would use the internet are starting to crumble. And in their place, well, cat videos.
2: It's always farmers looking up grain prices, except for the rare instances where it's fishermen looking up fish prices in in different ports close by. It's always women looking up maternal health, and it's always kids, sweet third world kids, studying under a streetlight, learning English on their phones. Leo Marani has recently been reporting on how the second
1: half of the world is getting online.
2: And that's actually, surprise, surprise, not why people spend lots of money buying smartphones and getting connected.
3: So I watch a lot of uh, shows. I uh, do a lot of Facebook. uh, And you can keep in touch with people.
4: Since I'm fond of photography, I normally use Instagram. That is one of the channels. Facebook I used to use, but now since uh, there's been a lot of ads, I started uh, skipping it.
2: They do it for the same reasons every one of us does it, which is to have a good time, chat with their friends, to watch videos, to be silly, to express themselves. That's what's bringing people online.
1: So all these new internet users, what's their behavior like?
2: People coming online today tend to be poorer. They tend to speak languages that are not English. Not all of them are educated or indeed literate. And so video and voice are the natural Input or user interface mechanisms, you don't need to be able to read or write to watch a video, obviously, or to speak. And I'll give you an example. I was in an Uber from the airport in Mumbai back to where I was staying. The guy sent me some texts so we could arrange where to meet exactly. And when I got in his car, he was like, did the texts make sense? I was like, yeah, more or less. It was a bit confusing because he asked me where he was rather than where I was. But I said, yeah, sure. Why do you ask? And he said, because actually I can't read or write. So what I do is I speak into this voice to text app and then I copy whatever that says and send it over and just hope it makes sense. And so that's how he uses this technology. Why has this growth been so, uh, so
1: amazing in India?
2: So something very interesting happened in India in 2016. Reliance, which is a massive conglomerate that does everything from power generation to retail, decided it would launch a new mobile network.
1: The largest, the widest, the fastest
2: network. Experience it. It's a new way of life. Indian mobile networks tend to be reasonably good and reasonably inexpensive anyway. But this company saw space for a challenger. And so they spent years and billions of dollars, somewhere in the vicinity of $37 billion, building the infrastructure so that when they deployed, they would have high-quality, high-speed 4G across the entire country. So they did that. They launched, and they launched with laughably low prices. Today, India has the world's lowest prices for mobile data. I mean, it was carnage. It was a complete bloodbath. The other networks either folded, consolidated, but in any case, all had to drop their prices dramatically. And so that's responsible for the sudden spurt in people coming online in India. Moreover, for foreign companies, India's a very, very important and sensible place to focus their energies because it's vast, it's multilingual, you know, regulations, while broadly national, there's sort of always some stuff at the state level, lots of illiterate people. So it's a great proxy for what the entire next half of the internet will look like.
1: So foreign companies clearly have lessons to learn, but can local companies use their local knowledge to gain advantage?
2: You're old enough to remember VLC, right? So VLC was the video player that people like you and I used back when we were definitely not pirating movies from BitTorrent sites, but assuming somebody had given us a file that you needed to open, VLC could open pretty much anything. Similarly, today, there's a player called MX Player for mobile. So... This Indian company, Times Internet, which is owned by the Times of India Media Group, which is a giant media conglomerate, had this insight that all of these people, not just in India, but in other parts of the world as well, are using MX Player to watch pirated movies that they're getting from some random guy whom they pay 50 rupees to fill up an SD card full of movies and music and stuff. There's a huge streaming war going on in India now. I mean, forget about Amazon Prime and Netflix. There's a dozen streaming companies all vying for the Indian mobile users' attention. So Time's insight was, all these people are using MX Player to watch pirated stuff. Why don't we buy that, build in a streaming service, continue letting them do what they're doing, but then just one tap away, here's the streaming. If they want to stream, great. Then we have this huge ready-made audience. So that sort of insight is sort of thing you're going to come up with when you're very much on the ground, when you understand a particular mentality, which is just the way things work in certain parts of the world. But what about the, the inevitable
1: downsides? I mean, what we heard a lot about, uh, in particular during the Indian election, is the, the pernicious effect of misinformation, in particular on WhatsApp. I mean, uh, with, with the good and the cat videos and the ease of use comes the bad.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is not at all to pretend that that stuff doesn't exist. We have to figure out how to manage the bad. And I think that's something that both the West and indeed the rest of the world has been doing for the past two or three years, ever since we sort of woke up as societies to the harms that unfettered, unregulated, extremely, extremely quick movement of information can have. WhatsApp is a very, very good example of how to think about these things. And I think a much better example than, say, how Facebook, the social network, or indeed YouTube have been handling this, which are content moderation policies, hiring lots and lots of people. What WhatsApp has done instead is slow things down a bit. Until a year and a bit ago, I could forward as many messages to as many people as I liked, and now that's no longer possible. I can forward a message only to five people at a time. If I want to do more, I just have to do the whole process again. It'll take an extra five seconds, but it's a small little speed bump that slows down the spread of information, makes it slightly harder for malicious actors, and More importantly, it makes it much harder for non-malicious, just everyday people who aren't thinking too much about what they're doing. And people aren't idiots. People learn from experience. So in the span of just two or three years, where people would once say, yeah, but I read that on WhatsApp. I got a message. Now it's come to the point where people say, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure about that. I read it on WhatsApp. So it's a natural process. Again, it's not something to be complacent about. But... There is evidence, certainly, just in the past few years, that these things can be managed if done in a sort of structural rather than case by case way. So to sum up, just because people are not, in fact, using
1: the Internet to get forecasts and grain prices and maternal health information is not to say that it hasn't been, won't yet be a great thing for that other half of the world.
2: Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it's a fantastic thing for the other half of the world. It's not that people are not interested in improving their lives. It is that that comes second. That is the cart, not the horse. The reason people are coming online is to... To use a delightful Indian English term is to do time passes, to have a good time, to chat with their friends, watch videos. Now, this sounds inconsequential, right? But it's important to remember that for you, Jason, or for me, there's many, many ways to chill, basically. For a lot of the world's poor, there are not. Very rarely do poor people go on holiday the way you and I know it. Now, for the first time, hundreds of millions of people will have access to entertainment. So that in itself is a big profound improvement and sort of aggregate happiness of humanity secondly for the first time also the world's rich people and the world's poor people are spending their spare time in exactly the same way what are they doing they're wasting time on instagram on tiktok or they're watching videos on youtube or they're watching movies or binge watching tv shows this is great this is fantastic they're having a nice time
1: leo thank you very much for coming in thank you for having me There are reasons to worry that racism is becoming more prevalent in America. One is that white supremacist movements have become more visible. In Charlottesville, Virginia, this rally marched in 2017. The crowd's chants included racist and Nazi slogans.
4: They're shutting down our freedoms, our rights... Our heritage, our principles in
1: this country. A counter-protester was killed when a demonstrator rammed her with his car. That sparked days of protests.
0: We were on that front line yesterday when that car came and slammed into all those people yesterday while the police stood by and allowed this car to come
1: rumbling down. President Donald Trump initially blamed counter-protesters for inciting violence.
2: There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, or you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is.
1: It was one of several incidents in recent years, like attacks on black churches and on synagogues, that have contributed to fears that racial divides are deepening and that Mr. Trump is not helping. A Pew poll in February found 45% of Americans thought it had become more acceptable to express racist views since Mr. Trump became president. However, long-term trends may cast these attitudes in a slightly different light.
3: So what we have uh, are a total of 4.4 million tests that have been taken online
1: A new study co-authored by the Harvard psychologist Mazarin Banaji shows a broad decline in racist attitudes in America over the past decade.
3: The tests come in two kinds. The less important test, I would say, are tests of explicit attitudes. How do you feel about race? Do you feel warmly towards people uh, who are black, white, etc.?
1: Those explicit race biases have declined significantly, by about 37%.
3: But what makes this study different is the extent and I guess the depth of evidence that we've accumulated on implicit measures of attitudes. These measures do not rely on a person telling us how they feel. Rather, we deduce that by looking at their performance on a test that requires them to respond quite rapidly to certain pairings. When I put a black face and good words like love and peace together, how quickly can you associate those Relative to when I have white faces and words like love or peace associated with them.
1: And Ms. Banaji's study shows that those implicit biases have also decreased. Not by as much, but by 17 percent, which isn't nothing.
4: They don't have a whole lot of evidence of what is causing the decline. Elliot Morris is a data journalist at The Economist. Uh, They do say, or they do speculate that frequent discussion in the media about sort of the negative consequences of biases. Uh, racial profiling by police, negative educational attainment is causing a decline or is, is causing people to be more aware of their biases and to correct them.
1: And that doesn't seem to chime with, you know, what we see a lot of in the news, which is, you know, a lot of it attributable to the, the rise of, of white identity politics, the, the evident rise in racism in America.
4: Right. So um, just because people are getting less racist doesn't mean that there aren't still issues in the public sphere uh, surrounding race. So you have this paradox, right? On the one hand, people are getting less racist. But on the other hand, there are still issues of race in America and in American politics uh, that sort of make it harder to then address the issues of racial equity. So if there's one party, for example, the, the Republicans, um, that are more wedded to the idea of racial exclusion and there's another party that's uh, wedded to the idea of racial inclusion, the Democrats, then it's harder to sort of come together and uh, and find fixes for uh, whichever problems are creating inequities in the system.
1: So the idea here is that on average, there is there is less of this bias. There is notionally less racism, but it's sort of being uh, concentrated along political lines. And so we hear about it because it gets sort of mucked in with all of the other polarized issues that divide America's body politic.
4: That's right. So on the one hand, you're noting we have a decline in biases, but on the other hand, um, American politics is becoming more polarized along these racial lines. Um, for example, you know, whites without college degrees have recently come to, uh, to embrace President Trump and a Republican Party that seems to be at least a bit more inclined uh, toward the politics of nativism than they have been in the past. Uh, and, for example, a third of Trump voters agreed with the statement that uh, it's extremely or very important for whites to work together to change laws that are unfair to whites, whatever that means. Um, so there are still issues of race in America, even if we're becoming less racist.
1: And so the reduction in bias that we see in studies like this presumably takes a while to kind of percolate through society.
4: Right. It, it might be that people are picking up on social cues to be less racist. We see a difference in the study between the decline in explicit and implicit attitudes on the magnitude of about 20 percentage points. So explicit attitudes are declining much faster.
1: So another way of saying that is that, it's, uh, that people are less willing to be seen as a racist? Is that the implication?
4: That's right. And the fact that implicit biases are declining... At a much uh, slower rate could be indicative of why structural changes are slow to come as well. You know, so long as people have implicit biases, so so long as um, bankers who give out loans, so long as uh, hiring directors in companies and and teachers for that matter have implicit biases against Black Americans, they will face um, institutional barriers to success. Elliot, thank you very much for your time. Of course, happy to be here.
1: Screams are induced by all sorts of emotions, from terror to surprise, even laughter. And so you don't have to listen too closely to know that screaming is everywhere.
5: It's in cinema, it's in art, it's in literature, it's even in popular culture.
1: Meg Honigman writes for Prospero, the economist's culture blog.
5: We remember the scream from Psycho, coordinated with the music. In Alien, the tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. Taps into the vast isolation of space and the most futile scream. In King Lear, Lear's deep, repeated howl at the death of his youngest daughter, Cordelia, stays with us long into the end of Act Five.
1: And so how is it that you got to looking into screams in, in art?
5: I started with Munch's famous painting, The Scream. Munch remembers in his diary what inspired the painting, writing, Suddenly the sky turned blood red. There was blood and tongues of fire above the blue black fjord and the city. I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature.
1: Why do you think Munch's scream has been such an enduring
5: image? I think. Munch's scream is so effective because it's infinite. It will never be heard by anyone. And because of that, it endures in popularity, especially in popular culture. The lithograph, the scream, is very interesting because it's done in black and white, which almost heightens the contrast of that noise and silence that we are constantly stuck between. A scream itself is something that sits somewhere between verbal and nonverbal. It's an articulation of an extreme emotion that can be understood by everyone but doesn't translate effectively.
1: And you, you mentioned the, the degree to which Monk's scream has sort of permeated popular culture. How do you mean? Yeah,
5: so... Through the scream emoji, through the meme culture of the internal scream and through masks inspired by the scream in the film The Scream franchise. Someone
1: is playing a deadly game. Someone who's seen one too many scary
5: movies. With the distorted, mutated scream that stretches the mouth beyond recognition in a way that becomes horror.
1: And how else are are screams used in films?
5: It's seen a lot in cinema, especially through stock screams. So the Wilhelm scream is a stock sound effect that was first used in the 1950s but has now appeared in, from July 2018, the count was 389 films. Wilhelm! And that way, the screams become kind of tainted with a comic effect because actually, once you listen to the same scream again and again, it's less startling and shocking than it was the first time.
1: Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe! So after looking at all of these different repeated screams, do you, do you still think Monk's original resonates?
5: When he writes about this infinite scream passing through nature, I think it taps into current themes of this feeling of needing to scream but not being able to. I found screams in cinema fascinating because of the visual impact of it. But in a way, once screams become actualised, they lose a lot of their effectiveness. Almost the second it enters the verbal world, it ends. Whereas Muntz's scream is infinite because we can never hear it.
1: Meg, this has been a screamingly good time. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. See you back here tomorrow.
4: Hi, this is Matt and Sean
5: from Two Black Guys. Good credit from
1: a local business
5: to a global corporation partnering with bank of america gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move
4: matter visit bank of banking for business to learn more what
3: would you like the power to do bank of america na copyright 2024